Uh, what I'd like to do now, though, is, is uh, introduce our guest speaker for this morning. Dr. Gary Bashirs is a professor at Western Seminary. Um, and that's kind of an understatement, because when you've been somewhere for 30-plus years, um, you're part of the institution in some sense. And so uh, Dr. Bashirs is measured, I don't think, just in terms of his teaching, but he's measured in terms of his mentorship. I think one of the ways you can tell a great seminary professor is the influence that that professor has on some of the leaders in Christianity over the decades. And Dr. Uh, Dr. Bashirs has an amazing name, uh, reputation for being a mentor to some of the greatest mentors that are out there. Uh, Dr. Bashirs has written a number of books recently um, with Mark Driscoll uh, out of Mars Hill in Seattle, part of what's called the Relit series. And uh, there's a number of these books. I would highly recommend this one, Bible Doctrine, uh, as just what I've seen is the best kind of comprehensive, easy-to-digest book on theology and, and Christian doctrine that I think is out there. Uh, it's excellent, and, and we've we got a bunch of copies this morning, not so that because Dr. Bashir's asked us to, but because we would really like for many of you to have this and to be able to refer to it. Um, it's kind of timely that Dr. Bashir's is here, because if you don't know about it, there's a lot of controversy in American Christianity right now. Uh, and so Dr. Bashir's is going to be doing Redux right after this service, and would just love for as many of you who can stay to stay and be able to ask all the questions you want just about some of the issues, contemporary issues that are swirling around because they're, they're serious issues and they're things that we want to think through uh, deeply and we also want to think through them biblically. And so we're kind of uh, blessed to have Dr. Bashirs do the Q&A. But I'll go ahead and invite him up and would you give him a warm welcome this morning. Hey, he was pretty nice, that wasn't bad. I, I'm used to kind of getting embarrassed when I stand up in front. I, I've, I'm just glad to be here. I was here for the Justice Conference and hung out and was here when Nick Walterstorff did his, do you call that a sermon? Thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this whole thing that Ken was talking about with the uh, controversies that are floating around, you know, there are a lot of them, there always are, but it kind of seems new things come up. How many of you have run across the Rob Bell Love Wins thing? Fair number of you. Uh, the question he's really asking behind that in his book, Love Wins, is really, who is God and who is Jesus? So what I'd like to do this morning as we spend some time together is I'd like to talk about who is this guy, Jesus? He is the most enigmatic figure in all of history. Without any doubt, if you took the top five most influential people in all of history on anybody's list, he would be one of them that's there. So I want to think about who that is. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to work in it. If you don't, I'm going to put some stuff up on the, on the screen here. But I, I look at this guy, and well, how many, let's just do a little, how many would say Jesus is God? About half of you, that's not bad. Yeah. Uh, good job, Ken. Yeah. How many say Jesus is man? About the same number. Okay, I wonder if there's the same people. That would be interesting. Uh, when I think of this, we, I mean, we believe fundamentally 
that Jesus is the eternal God who made everything come into this world to show us the glory of the Father. And one of the things that just intrigues me all over the place is that God comes down, and in John chapter 12, I can run across something like this. He's predicting that he's going to die. You know, God is going to die? How weird is that? But the thing that kind of gets me as he's talking about it here, some people come and they say, hey, we want to talk to Jesus, and they're in this stuff. John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus, thinking about his death to pay for the sins of the world, says, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I came. He knows his purpose is to die, but his heart is troubled. I would think that if he's God and here on a mission, that he would have, like, no trouble. He's the same guy that just a little bit later, John chapter 14, verse 1, he says this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. So John chapter 12, I mean, this is, this is what kind of, huh, weird. John 12, 27, now my heart is troubled, he says. On John 14, 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. How can you have it both ways? What I'd like to do here is just do kind of a quick shot at who is this guy Jesus. And we're going back to the beginning of the book of John, John chapter 1. In uh, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made, and him was life, and so on. When I look at this passage, I look at this, John 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now there's some obvious kinds of questions that pop up there. What is the word in the beginning, what does that refer to? When you see in the beginning, what do you think of? You think of what? You think of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Which beginning are we thinking about? Or we thinking about Genesis 1-1 beginning. So we have a time marker here. And this time marker, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and what began at that point? What began at that point? Everything. Okay, like what? The earth, heavens, all the stars, moon, sun. How about mass energy? How about space time? Did those pre exist the beginning? No, those all had beginning at that point. In fact, what I would suggest, and this is the, actually the mainline scientists agree with this, even though they don't believe in the Bible, even those who don't believe in the Bible, the so-called Big Bang Theory, is that everything had a beginning, including 
mass, energy, space, time, laws of nature, everything began, and that's the time marker we're talking about. Now, when was that, according to the Bible? My name is Gary, and I have an opinion about everything. I don't think the Bible tells us when it was. I think Genesis chapter 1 is talking about the beginning of Eden, or Ha'ara, it's the promised land. I think what Genesis 1 is talking about is God shaping Eden as a beautiful place for him to live with his image of God creatures, Adam and Eve, and their progeny. And Genesis chapter 1 is talking about the beginning of humanity, the beginning of the land, the promised land, on an already existing earth. And if you want to see more, you can read Doctrine. <laughs> That's a good promo. <laughs> but when did, the, when did the beginning of everything happen? The God who created everything creates Eden for him to live in with us. When did everything happen? Well, biblically, it doesn't say when, I think. But whenever it was, this time marker is in the beginning. So put whatever time you want there, 10,000 years, 13.7 billion years, doesn't really make any difference. At that point is our time marker. So if we translated this in the beginning, kind of loosely, we'd translate it at the time when all created things were created. That's the time marker. Okay, what's the next word? Was. Okay, good. What does was mean? I don't mean to be Clintonian on you, but, you know, what does was mean? It's past tense. Good. What else does it mean? When you think of was, what? Existing. Does it mean a point or a, a time was? Was is, is just a statement of process. Was is a, uh, is a, a stated verb in the past. Now what's the time marker? What's the time marker? When everything was created. Was means before that, Talking about continuing existence. So, oh, I'm sorry, I do the word next. What do we think about when we think about the word? Well, that's, we think about Genesis 1-3, and God said, that's the word of God. We could also think about, if you know the angel of the Lord, you know, the one that shows up in Genesis chapter 3 in the burning bush, Genesis 3, or sorry, Exodus 3-2. It says, and the angel of the Lord was in a bush, and then two verses later it says, and the Lord spoke, Melach Yahweh, translated often as the angel Lord, could also be translated as the message of the Lord, or the word of the Lord. If you're Greek, and you look at the logos, which that's what that word is, the logos, according to the Greeks, is the organizing purposive principle of everything. The logos is that that gives purpose for everything. So whether you come at it from a Hebrew background or a Greek background, this is very, very fundamental. And it's talking about the word. Now, was already in continuing existence before the current event. What's the current event? When everything was created. Okay, now let's take it a piece at a time. In the beginning, talks about was or was already in continuing existence in the beginning at the time when all created things were beginning. Okay. At the time all created things were created, was was already in continuing existence and 
the Logos. Now, can you put the pieces together? What is it saying? The Logos what? Was already in continuing existence at the time when all created things were created. I'm just re- I could read this out of Greek, but the same thing comes out of the English. At the time when all created things were created, the Word was already in continuing existence. So what does that say about the Word? It means He is not created. And in fact, that's as it goes on here in verse 3, at the time when all things were made, He was involved in making things. So what we have here is the eternal existence of the Word, the Logos. Nothing created there. One of the early heresies in the church, and one that continues to exist, is that the one who is incarnate in Jesus is a created being. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, argue that the one incarnate in Jesus is Michael the archangel. And for many, they're going to see the one in Jesus as a created being, but John is saying something different. He's saying that word has eternal existence. Okay, next phrase. The word was with God. Now you've already got some translational expertise. What is the word? Well, that's the logos. Was? Was already in continuing existence before the time marker. What's the time marker? In the beginning, when all created things were created. How about that last word? How about God? That's the God. Now, you've got to understand biblically there are other gods, little g gods, created beings, powerful spiritual entities, Satan being one of them, but Dagon and Baal and Astarte and Astroth and Isis and Chemish and Moloch and many others are angels that rebelled against God and they are gods, little g gods. The first commandment in the Ten Commandments is what? Thou shalt have no other what? Gods before me. And the second commandment, have no idols representing those gods. But here it's talking about the God. That's the one who created heaven and earth. Now, the little word was is followed by another little word, with. What does with mean? Well, in Greek, this is the only place I have to refer to the Greek. In Greek, there are two with words. One with word is soon, it means side by side. The other with word is pros, it means face to face. So, soon is what guys do when they talk. They walk side by side, they're going to get something, right? Pros is what women do. They face to face, they like relate to each other. Right? Yeah, something like that. Um... Sherry and I had been married for 43 years. On Tuesday, she was supposed to be with me so we could have some anniversary time this weekend. She ended up having knee replacement surgery instead. So she's at home with a really sore left knee to match the formerly really sore right knee, but in a couple months we'll be able to walk again, which I'm really looking forward to. I really, really like being married. We've been at it for 43 years. It's just absolutely wonderful. When Sherry and I do pillow talk, what are you laughing about? (laughs) 
you hold your husband's hand. Yeah, you probably know what I mean. Yeah, pillow talk is that time, especially when you've got small kids, the door shut. It's just husband and wife together in bed, laying there, talking, intimate. I mean, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. If I had to pick one thing out of marriage, I'd pick pillow talk as the number one thing. And I'm not down on sexual relations at all. Love making is cool too. <laughs> but I've had, frankly, if I had to choose between the two, I'd choose pillow talk. It's just, and I don't have to choose between them, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> when Shay and I are doing pillow talk, and we're talking in that deep, intimate husband and wife, very, very special time. Soon, pros. Is pillow talk soon or pros? Pros. Okay. Now, Sherry comes out of an abusive background. Her father was a very, very, very angry man, and the house was filled with conflict. Sherry was middle child, wallflower, and is avoidant off the charts. And after you've been married, oh, 20 plus years, her doctor, Greg Knopf, said, you're depressed, you need to get some help. She said, how can I be depressed? You know, everything's good. I've got great kids, good family. My husband loves me. Life is good. He said, you're depressed. And she ended up going to see a Christian psychologist, Dave Waller. And they got into some stuff. And I was a little hesitant. You know, what happens if, like, he unglues her or something like that. That first, now, Sherry is avoidant off the charts. And after some initial stuff, she and Dave really got into some deep stuff with her abusive background. Turned to be far worse than we knew. I knew she was, I knew that she was dissociative. We'd already discovered that. She'd get in a tense situation. She just wouldn't be there. Absolutely no memory of events I had been with her on. And they start going into why the dissociation. And when they hit that first really, really, really painful time, pillow talk, soon or pros? Soon. How come? It was too painful and too scary. Sherry is avoidant off the charts. And that night, our pillow talk was soon. Sherry looking at the ceiling telling me what she, what Dave said, not even what she said. What? Painful stuff. I know how to handle that as a pastoral counselor. I don't know how to handle it as a husband. We had to learn some stuff. She came up with a hand signal, which means shut the toolbox, quit trying to fix me. And I needed that a lot because I love my wife and I just desperately wanted to help her with that stuff. And I couldn't, except to support her and love her and be with her. And a ministry of presence is so important. And I remember, just with incredible fondness, the night that Sherry came home, and we had pillow talk that night after one of her times with Dave, <clears throat> and our pillow talk again was pros. And she began to describe the pain stuff inside her. Incredible, incredibly intimate, trusting time. I mean, it's a highlight of our marriage. And Sherry's a different woman today. 
because of this highly skilled work that Dave was able to do with her and a good community of support. Now, God and the word, soon or pros? Which word is in Greek? Soon or pros? Pros. The word here is not side-by-side buddy, partner. The word here is face-to-face deep relationship. And what we're doing here is we're, so when you use the word was, we're saying that the God and the word are in face-to-face intimate relationship. Now, follow it through. The word is what? What's the word? That's the logos. Was already in continuing existence at the time marker with face-to-face relationship and God is the God. So the translation then would be, and the Logos was already in face-to-face relation with the God. At what time was he in face-to-face relationship with the God? At the time when all created things were created. Second phrase. Third phrase. We've got eternal existence, eternal relationship so far. The third phrase, and the word was God. Okay, now that's pretty easy. What is, uh, the word is logos. What is was? Continuing existence at the, before the time marker. And what's the time marker? When all things were created. Uh, and God. Well, that's, but you know what? It's not the God. It's not the God. In, verse, in phrase two, it's ha-theos. In phrase three, the the has disappeared. So when you lose the article, it can come across in two different ways. It can either come across as a God, one among many or one among several, or it can come across as having the same characteristics as. Okay, the word was a God. What would that mean? The word was one God among several. Is that what John is saying? That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They believe the word was Michael, one high spiritual being among many others, including Satan and Raphael and Gabriel and good and bad angels. Is that what he's saying? Actually, it can't be. How come? Because it goes on and talks about the fact that by him all, or through him all things were made. And if you look back in Isaiah 44, 24, it says Yahweh alone created. No one helped Yahweh create. Only God created. can't be a God. How important is monotheism to Jewish folk? They'll die for it. The Shema, hear Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is Echad, one. So it's not a God. The other possibility is, well, some of you maybe, some of you ladies been on a date and you got home and your friends say, well, how was it? You say, you know, Bill's a dog. Take that phrase. Bill is a dog. What are you saying? 
out of hair where there shouldn't be hair, kind of tongue gets all over the place, you know, sloppy when he eats, friendly but kind of overdoes it a little bit. It's maybe not the most, it's, you're saying that Bill has characteristics of dogness. It's probably not real promising for more dates. Unless there's repentance on Bill's part. That's the phrase he's using here. He's saying the word was, stative, godness. So when we're doing that, we're saying he has the same characteristics as the God. So the word is the logos, was, continuing existence, God having the same characteristics of the God. So what he's saying here is the Logos was already existing with the same characteristics as the God. And what time was that? Before all things were created. So what are we saying here? Eternal existence, eternal relationship, eternal deity. That is the Word. Okay, that's John 1.1. Now I want to skip a whole bunch of good stuff and skip down to verse 14. In verse 14, uh, it says basically this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So let's unpack this a little bit. What is the word? That's the logos, yes. How about became? Not was anymore. Became. What does the word became mean? Was is a stative verb, become is a changing verb. So if I say 43 years ago I became married, that would be true. That was quite a change. I had no idea what I was signing up for. I thought I knew, but gosh, and Sherry thought she knew. She thought she was going to marry a math professor who was going to go off and teach math eventually in a university and run a campus group. In fact, we taught at Colorado for a year and then in junior high and then took off to Faith Academy in the Philippines, 8,000 miles away from family. Took a six-week-old baby with us. Yikes. No money, no support, didn't know anybody. What do you call that? Stupid. (laughs) Gosh. But God was in it. Amazing change. She had no idea what she was signing up for. Became is one of those change words. And it really means to be conformed to or to change your way of living. So the word changed his way of living to flesh. Okay, so what is flesh? One understanding of flesh, of course, is just the meat stuff. Another understanding of flesh is actually look back in Bible in Genesis chapter 2, the marriage verse. In the marriage verse, it says, Adam, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become what? One flesh. What does flesh mean there? It means whole person, concrete humanity. It means two persons joined into oneness. So in some mysterious way, a man and a woman become one while still two. One flesh. 
And what he's talking about here when he says the word became flesh is it's saying he becomes concretely human just like Adam and Eve. Jesus becomes concretely human just like Adam and Eve. Now, it's the word that does that. Who is the word? He's what? Eternal existence, eternal relationship, eternal deity. This is the immutable, unchanging God who becomes flesh. Astonishing. Astonishing. He changes his way of living to be fully conformed to concrete humanity, just like Adam and Eve. The Logos, the eternally existent second person of the Trinity, changes way of living to become fully conformed to concrete humanity, just like Adam and Eve. And what we're saying here, really, in a real sense, is the word became flesh. The word became Jesus. And what did he look like when he became Jesus? Kind of like that. Do you like that picture? I'm totally, totally into babies. Do you think Jesus glowed there in the manger? Do you think Mary, his mother, looked like that? My guess is this is a little different picture. I think it probably looked more like this. Do you think? Jesus still glows in this picture by Melchers, but Mary is totally white. Ah, you know, just, man, this is hard having a baby. You know, uh, Mike Rich's marvelous, marvelous uh, nativity story does it well, too. And Joseph, poor ugly guy standing there saying, what have I gotten myself into? Michael Card sings so beautifully, how can a man be the father of the Son of God? And Jesus lays there and sleeps. And Mary kissing the one who created heavens and earth. What an amazing thought. What an amazing thought. Now, what I'd like to do is take it another step. I'd like to have you turn actually to another passage. I'd like to have you turn to Philippians chapter 2. Because I want to take this down another level and understand a little bit better what happened when the word became flesh. So if you turn to Philippians chapter 2, I'll put it up here. Actually, I'm going to put it up here from the, this is the New American Standard Version. It's, a, it's woodenly literal. English is never spoken. Uh, but in cases like this, it can actually be pretty, pretty helpful. So this is Philippians 2, 6, and 7, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, and that goes on. What's the key verb there? What's the key verb in that sentence? What is it? Exists in the form of God, did not regard equality as God a thing to grasp, but emptied himself, taking the form of bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, and it goes on. What's the verb? Emptied himself. That's the key verb, and it talks about before and after. Emptied himself, or made himself nothing, as 
other translations translate it, is the key verb. You have a before and an after. It's just like the became of John 1.14. So let's put it like this, putting the phrases in order. And just to make the things a little bit clearer, let's... Aha, that's not going to work. Okay. PowerPoint to this does different things. I, okay, let's do that. Okay, let's think for a minute here. Before, he is the form of what? He's a form of God. After he empties himself, what is his form? As a servant or a slave, a bondservant. Okay, now we've got we to gotta play with a little bit here. What does this word form mean? Think of the form of a slave. If you look into Greek philosophy, if you go back to Aristotle and Plato and the guys 500 years early in philosophic discourse, the word form means inner essence. So let's think for a little bit here. Do certain human beings have the inner essence of slaveness? Is slaveness a matter of essence? Is my question. If you go back, not that far back, 150 years, in the southern part of the United States, they said if your skin was dark, you were a lesser human being and really fit only for slaveness. A hundred years ago on the West Coast, a little more than that, 125 years ago on the West Coast, if your skin was yellow, Chinese, you were a lesser form of human being and fit only for servanthood among many. True or false? Totally false. Totally false. If there's one doctrine that's absolutely essential to, human, to biblical Christianity is that all human beings are image of God. And no human being, no matter what their race, ethnicity, nationality, is a lesser form of human being. Not at all. That's what led to the Christians working for the Emancipation Proclamation back in the middle of the 19th century. Is form a matter of inner essence for servanthood? And the answer is no. No, it's not. What is it? It's a matter of role or lifestyle. If somebody becomes a servant, what was the guy's name back here, Dan? Is he by essence a servant or by role and lifestyle and choice a servant? By role and lifestyle. Now some people are more gifted in that than others. By the way, in the apostolic era, there's one person who got raised to life. Do you remember who it is? Who got resurrected in the apostolic era in the book of Acts? Wasn't James the apostle? He got killed and left him dead. Who needs an apostle? Who got resurrected? Dorcas, the servant. They could do without James. They couldn't do without Dorcas. Servants are way more important than apostles. Dan is way more important than Ken. Agreed? Yeah, yeah. Role or lifestyle. 
So if it's role or lifestyle of a servant, I'd suggest to you it's role or lifestyle of God. Now, question. How many people live in the lifestyle of God? How many people live in the lifestyle of God with all the perks and privileges thereunto appertaining? One's the wrong answer. How many people, how many persons, whatever, how many beings live in the role or lifestyle of God, the God? Three, why do you say three? Father, Son, Spirit. How about Michael the archangel? Does he live in the role or lifestyle of God? The answer is no, he doesn't. Though he's the leader of the heavenly host, apparently, he does not live in the role or lifestyle of God. There's only three, Father, Son, Spirit, all Yahweh, all God, that live in that lifestyle. He begins with the role or lifestyle of God and then empties himself to the role or lifestyle of a servant. What is his status before he empties himself? He has the same authority status as God the Father. That's what we saw in the third phrase of John chapter 1. But after he empties himself, he has the authority status of of a human. Of what does Jesus, or what does the word empty himself? Does he empty himself of his deity? Does he stop being God? You're all afraid to say anything now, huh? (laughs) Does he stop being God? He does not. First name that's given him is Emmanuel, God with us. He does not stop being God. What does he empty himself of? His role or lifestyle of deity and his authority status as God. Is Jesus equal with God? Now, by Jesus, I mean God in flesh. I mean between Bethlehem and Calvary. Is Jesus equal with God? The answer is no. Look at John 14, 28. John 14, 28. Jesus himself speaking to the disciples. He says, I'm going away and I'm coming back. And they object to that. And at the end of John 14, 28, he says, if you understood, you would know that this is a good thing. I'm going to the Father for the very last phrase of John 14, 28, for what? The Father is what? Greater than I. The Father is greater than I. Jesus himself says it. What does he mean here? He means that in his incarnate state, He has given up the status of equality. He is no longer living as equal to the Father. Now, his personhood, he still is. 
boy, I've been trying to figure this out for a long time and trying to come up with an illustration that kind of makes sense of it. Here's the best I can do. Okay. I am an elder at Grace Community Church in Gresham, Oregon. And because I'm one of the elders, I have a super master key. Authority. This gets me in any door in the building at Grace Community Church in Gresham, Oregon. Now, it turns out there are four different levels of keys. There is a super master key, like this one. There are master keys. There are staff keys. And there are access keys. I have a super master key. What key does Sherry have, my wife? Is she an elder at Grace Community Church? Mm -mm. What does she have? She just had an ordinary access key. Do I lord it over her because I have a super master key? <laughs> nah, you know, of course I don't. But here's the point. I have this super master key because of my role as an elder at Grace Community Church. What kind of access key did the word have? What kind of access key did the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, have before all things were created? His access key got him into just about everything. All kinds of authority, all kinds of privileges, all kinds of heaven. I mean, he, he could command the stars and they would move. And what did he do when he became flesh? What did he do when he emptied himself? He let go the access key. And what key did he keep? The human access key. Now, is that still his key? Is that still his key? Totally. Totally. He didn't stop being God. But what he did is he put down that access key and took the ordinary key of a human being. Now, here is my thesis. My thesis is that when he became flesh, when he emptied himself of the form of God and took the form of a servant and the likeness of man, that's an image and likeness from Genesis chapter 1. When he took the likeness of man, he then lived as a perfectly spirit-filled human being. The role he had, the lifestyle he had, was not the role or lifestyle or the authority of the Logos. The authority he had was a perfectly spirit-filled human being. He did not use his divine authority. He lived as a perfectly spirit-filled human being. Now, he did some amazing stuff. He, like, healed people. Okay? Do humans heal people? Peter and Paul did. How about raising people from the dead? Jesus did that. Lazarus, John chapter 11, amazing story. Do humans raise people from the dead? They do. Dorcas, 
Peter raised her from the dead. How did he do that? How did Peter do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. By the will of the Father. We can't do it apart from the Spirit, can't do it apart from the will of the Father. But Jesus worked the same way, I suggest. Jesus walked on water. Can people walk on water? Well, Peter did. Not real well and not real long. If it's the will of the Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. The Pharisees are challenging him because he has just cast a demon out of a deaf, mute man. The people are saying, gosh, could this be the son of David, the Messiah? Because I read Isaiah, he will open the mouth of the mute, open the eyes of the blind. And the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 he does it by Beelzebub. He does it by the prince of demons. And Jesus responds, no, not so. Mm -mm. Satan is not here to destroy Satan. I'm here to destroy Satan. And then he says, if I cast out demons by mm -mm -mm -mm, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. What's in the mm -mm -mm -mm? If I cast out demons by what? The Spirit of God. Then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, question. In Mark chapter 9, after the transfiguration, Jesus comes down and there's a big hoorah going on. A bunch of people arguing. And it turns out there's a demonized boy there. And the disciples can't cast the demon out of the boy. And when Jesus walks up to the group there and there's big hoorah going on, he says, what are you all arguing about? Here's my question. Does he know the answer to that question? When he says, what are you all arguing about? Does he know the answer to the question? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, there are other times when he has supernatural knowledge because the Spirit gave it to him. For many people, they will answer my question, did Jesus know what they were arguing about? He'd say, well, of course, he is God. But, what did I just say? He gave up the use of his divine attributes and lived by the power of the Holy Spirit as a perfectly Spirit-filled human being God in the flesh, living as a perfectly spirit-filled human being under the authority of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Spirit. I don't think he knew the answer. A little bit later, he asks the Father, how long has he been like this? I think in those cases, he doesn't know. Now, there are other times he does know, and the Holy Spirit gives him that information, but today... Can the Holy Spirit give me information that I need for the sake of ministry, that's supernatural knowledge? Absolutely. Absolutely. See, now here's kind of the bottom line. Here's kind of the bottom line. Can you be like Jesus? Can you be like Jesus? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Now, you can't be God in the flesh, though so you may think you're that. <laughs> Can you be like Jesus? Can you do the kinds of things that Jesus did in his life as a 
human, perfectly spirit-filled here on earth. And I think we can. I think we are capable of far more as spirit-empowered individuals than we usually think that we are. And when we have things like the call for justice, when you have the call for take the gospel to the world, I think we can do those things. And I think we actually undersell the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. For example, can you live a sin-free life? The answer is no, I don't think so. But for most of us, we can do a lot better job than we're currently doing because we really don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome temptation. We don't use the power of the Spirit to take every thought captive because we fundamentally don't believe we can do it. If my thesis is right, that Jesus the God-man lives as a perfectly Spirit-filled human being, if we live as perfectly Spirit-filled human beings, as community and individuals, we can do greater works than Jesus did. Powerful thought. Can you be like Jesus? I think we can. Let's pray together. Lord, I just again struck by the power of what you do and amazed at the work that you do when you come here to show us the glory of the Father. You come here to live with us, to show us how to live as children of the Most High God in a world where so much evil goes on, but yet you went the path of death taking our death to yourself so that we can have your life now and forever. We just praise you, Father, for loving us enough to do that. We praise you, Son, for loving us enough to come among us to do that. Holy Spirit, empower us, teach us, transform us so that we can live lives like our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.